Right, uh, back back to the the Bible survey tonight. Um, now we're going to do two Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Now that sounds like an awful lot, um, but it's not because two Timothy is fairly short, Titus is fairly short, and Philemon is incredibly short. In fact, it's more just like a little chapter. So uh, it's quite it's quite viable for us to uh, to do that. Um, so la- last time we we did Paul's first letter. To Timothy, um, and just just to remind us, we saw that Timothy had uh, you know been dispatched to Ephesus um, to lead the churches there. We 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 saw that something we don't know all the details, but we could piece it together. Something had gone very wrong in the church concerning eldership, um, and that that Timothy had had been sent there to kind of sort it out and possibly even to raise up new leadership. You know, but we you know we saw that that something had gone wrong. Um, and interestingly enough, I suppose, just to put 1 Timothy in a nutshell, and this kind of only occurred to me after uh, we did the study last time, but you've often heard me say that if you read the Gospels, the, 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 the one single thing that Jesus taught about more than anything else, as recorded in the Gospels, is money. So if you read the Gospels, the one subject that gets more coverage than any other is money. But if you read the rest of the New Testament and the epistles and everything like that, then the thing that gets mentioned more than anything else is the danger of false teaching. And it was interesting because in doing 1 Timothy, Paul was emphasising the dangers of false teaching and how to combat it, and he had an awful lot to say about money. So, you know, I just thought that was kind of a bit of a nutshell of the whole New Testament there. but anyway, that was last time. So now uh, we're going to start with a Paul's second letter to Timothy. Now, this was two or three years, maybe three or four uh, years after 1 Timothy. So clearly, Timothy was with the churches in Ephesus for some time. It wasn't, it wasn't a short dispatch. He, he was there relatively long term. And I suppose that if, if indeed it was, you know, sort of seeing eldership raised up from scratch, then by definition that would take quite a long time. So this is two or three years after 1 Timothy. Now, Paul's situation, as he writes, is now very different. Now he's in prison. When he was writing 1 Timothy, he was free. And he's been imprisoned in Rome under the reign of the Emperor Nero. Now, Nero, he was the one who fiddled while Rome burned and then, then went and kind of blamed the Christians for it. And, uh, and really, Paul is writing this clearly believing that his own death is imminent. Um, as, as indeed, it, it, you know, it does seem that it was. So we're, you know, we're looking at AD 66, 67, something like that. So Paul's second letter to Timothy. And um, as, 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 as is usual, Paul starts off by saying that he was um, an apostle by the will of God. It was nothing to do. It wasn't that Paul decided this was what he was going to do. He was simply doing what God had called him to do. And he, he refers to Timothy as ever as my dear son. And that, that's the relationship that Paul would strike up with co-workers who were significantly younger than him. He was like a father to them. And obviously, to those who were his, old, you know, his, his own age, he was you know, just... A brother, 
But, you know, you see this singular lack in Paul of, well, in fact, all the apostles of this idea of the big man, the executive or something like that. It's not how leadership worked in the New Testament church. It was very much more relational. It was, you know, I mean, Paul was a father to these guys. So, you know, there's no question of Paul being the big executive, the big leader or anything like that. He, he relates to Timothy as, as his son. And as, as ever, he opens by, by wishing him grace, mercy and peace. And then he... he assures Timothy that he prays for him constantly. Now, when, when you get this word constantly um, in the New Testament, um, you know, you kind of might think, well, constantly. I mean, does that mean absolutely all the time? How could Paul be praying all the time? When you hit this word constantly in the New Testament, the Greek word is for a hacking cough. Now, if you've got a hacking cough, it doesn't mean that you're coughing 24 hours a day, but you're not far from the next cough. Yeah. You know, can you see the point? So the thing is that Paul's... Paul's waking hours are punctuated with, with thinking about Timothy and, and, and praying for him. And he says that, that, that he longs to see him again. And obviously at this juncture, when you're in prison, you don't have a lot to do, obviously. So, so Paul would have given much more time to prayer while he was in prison than uh, you know, perhaps when he was out and about and working. And uh, he, 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 he says that as he's writing, as he's thinking of Timothy, that he's, he's reminded of, of the sincere faith that Timothy has that was passed to him from his grandmother, and her name was Lois, and his mother, Eunice. Now, the point is, Timothy, as we saw, Jewish mum, Greek father, but clearly believers. So the point is, and you see this often in scripture and you see it in Proverbs as well, that here Timothy has been raised in the faith from a young lad, okay, from infancy, okay. He knew the scriptures. And uh, and, and look at the influence of his mother and his grandmother. And, and that's amazing. You know, I mean, obviously it's the primary responsibility of, of a husband and father to teach the children. But his wife is his helpmate. Which means that part her role is, and I think this is a beautiful picture of how the, the involvement of, of mums and grandmothers and things like that with the younger children, especially with the boys, preparing them, raising them to be future servants of God. And, and it's just a, a, lovely, a lovely picture there. And then he, he urges Timothy to fan his gift into flame. And we've, we've been talking about this quite a bit, haven't we, over the last few weeks, this idea of fanning into flame. You know, God's given us gifts. He's given us power, but, but it's for us to keep it going. And Paul says, so look, you know, Timothy, fan into flame the gift you received. And he says, when I laid hands on you. Now, now we saw last time that there was a point where Timothy had hands laid on him by the elders. So it's very possible that maybe the reference to the elders laying hands on him was when the Holy Spirit set him aside to be an apostle and existing leadership in whatever church he was at at that point laid hands on him to pray that God would anoint him for that. This laying on of hands that Paul is talking about, maybe it was when he was baptised with the Spirit. But the point is there was a time when Paul had laid hands on him and, and he'd certainly been imparted a gift. And it could indeed just be the gift of the Holy Spirit, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But whatever it is, he says, Timothy, keep fanning into flame. And of course, if you've got a fire, you're trying to start a fire, there might be a little spark there, but you fan it and whoosh, the flame comes. And that's what we have to do. Obviously, everything is of the Lord, but we've got to be doing our bit. And he, he, he says to him that, 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 that God doesn't give us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self discipline. And when you put together a lot of what Paul says to Timothy, uh, it, you get the feeling that Timothy was probably a bit of a timid chap. 
Uh, you know, Paul was Paul was fearless, and you know, you get that feeling Peter was fearless. You know, just oh, do your worst to me. But that's not what Timothy was like. And you know, and you see Paul often encouraging Timothy to to be brave, to be a bit bolder. Paul Paul didn't need encouraging to be bold. In, in fact, Paul, Paul Paul needed training in his earlier years to calm down a bit. Peter. Peter didn't need God to train him up to be bold. Peter needed to learn to perhaps not be quite so bold. But for Timothy, it seems that he was your quieter type, okay? Uh, you know, more mellow, maybe a bit, you know, sort of timid, okay? And he, he goes on to say to Timothy, look, don't be ashamed of the Lord and don't be ashamed of me. See, Paul was in prison. And, and, and so again, you, you'd say that to someone who's a little bit maybe on the weak side, on the insecure side. And he says, but rather, he said, don't, don't be ashamed of me, don't, don't be ashamed of Jesus, but join in the suffering that's going on. You know, so clearly Timothy would have, like me, crawl over broken glass to avoid suffering, if you see what I mean. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and he says, look, God has saved us and called us to live holy lives. And he said, it's not because of anything we've done, but it's purely because of his own purpose and grace. So given, Timothy, that you, you've been called, that, that your, your, your life is God's purpose, that you've been given God's grace, therefore, you know, join in the suffering that, that often that means. And, and then Paul goes on to say, he says, look, this grace was given before time began. He says, but now it's been revealed through the appearing of Jesus. God's grace suddenly in the coming of Jesus has been declared in, in, in all its, its, its glory. And he says that, that Jesus, this saviour, has destroyed death and he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So suddenly, when Jesus dies, all the lights go on. You can read through the Old Testament, but if that's all you've got, <coughs> you see hints of God's grace. You, you see it there, but unless you read the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament, so much is veiled. And what he's saying is that with the coming of Jesus, bang, all the lights have gone on, and now God's grace is absolutely unmissable. And, um, and he says that, that he, Paul, has been appointed a herald, herald and an apostle and a teacher of that gospel. And he says, Timothy, that's why I'm suffering and I'm not ashamed. So he says, don't you be ashamed either. And he says, I know the Lord. And he says, I know that he's going to guard everything that I've entrusted to him. So Paul is resting easy, knowing that whether he lives or whether he dies, it's all under God's control. And you know, you're clearly seeing here someone who is strong and secure in the Lord, encouraging and lifting up someone who's not quite so strong in the Lord, a mature believer, a leader, no question, but nevertheless someone who inside is more of the timid, insecure type than the big, bold, you know, kind of Paul, as it were. And, uh, and then he, he, he reminds Timothy to, to, to keep hold of everything he's learned from Paul. He says, look, don't forget everything that you've learned from me. And he says, keep the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Jesus. And in a sense, that, that's really what the Christian life is. He, he says, look, keep the pattern of sound teaching. That's the truth of the Bible. With love and faith. Faith, our relationship with Jesus. Love is what it's all about. Love is the motive for everything. And when you put those things together, the pattern of sound teaching, keeping 
biblical, staying with the word of God, all right? The pattern of sound teaching, faith and love, that's the package of the Christian life. And if you try and get bits and pieces, but not the whole lot, it goes wrong, doesn't it? It goes wrong. There are people who maybe could be all sound doctrine. It's all they're interested in. You know, and they're sort of like, you know, they don't really seem to know Jesus that well and they're not very loving and that's a big mistake. But there are other people, you know, they want to do all the faith and the love bit, but they're not interested in what the Bible says. They're deluding themselves. This is a package. You, you, you've you got to have it all, you know, sort of like, a, you know, say if you've got, you know, a beach house sometimes where we stay in Florida on four legs. But if you go chopping any of the legs away, well, I mean, you know, it's it, the whole thing is going to fall down. So keep the pattern of sound teaching faith and love that's that's the package that we've been called to keep those things and we will grow in the lord okay and he says that that timothy must guard what god has entrusted to him with the help of the holy spirit so what paul is saying he says i've given myself and everything about me to god i trust him to guard it okay but timothy at the same time you've got to guard what god gave you you see the point god guards us but what God gives us, we've got to guard. Because if we let go of it, if we lose it, well, we're going to mess up our Christian lives. And what Paul is saying, look, Timothy, remember everything that you've learned from me. Keep hold of it. Don't let it go. Stick to it for all you're worth. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will be able to. And then Paul, Paul tells him, and, and, and this, is, this is something that often gets missed, okay? Um, Paul, Paul was, you know, kind of in, you know, had been in the region of Asia. Ephesus was there. Paul's now in Rome, okay, in prison. And he tells Timothy that, um, that, that most of his companions in the region of Asia, so, so, so many people that Paul had known, that he had worked with and stuff like that, he says, Timothy, they've deserted me. They've deserted me. If, if, if you put Paul's life together, you know, Acts and all the, all the letters and, and fit the pieces of the jigsaw together, there were times, repeatedly, when most of Paul's Christian friends fell out with him or walked out on him because they couldn't take it. It was too much for them. And here is Paul in prison writing to one of the few people who were still prepared to stand with him. All the others had deserted him. And of course, remember that Paul, wherever he went, there were always these false teachers trying to spread these false rumours about him and trying to denigrate him and tell lies about him. Paul put up with that his whole life, or, you know, his whole life of, of following the Lord. And of course, some of these would have been people who, prior to them doing that, were actually his friends. People who deserted him and then turned against him. And he says, including Figulus and Hermogenes. Now, Figulus and Hermogenes, this is the only mention we get of them in the entire scripture. And it's because they deserted Paul. I mean, what, what a sad epitaph. I mean, they're believers, we're going to meet them in heaven. Praise the Lord, they're in heaven. But how, what a sad testimony that it was too hot in the kitchen, so you had to get out. I mean, you know, Paul's saying, no, Timothy, you be strong. Be prepared to, to, to go through whatever the problems are. And, uh, but then he says, on the other hand, there were others who hadn't deserted him. And he talks about Onesiphorus and his household. Um, and, you know, how Onesiphorus had actually come and searched him out in Rome. They kind of knew that Paul was headed there. He'd gone off the radar completely, probably knowing Paul is in prison somewhere. Let's go find him. 
So, on the one hand, Paul is sad because of people who've deserted him, but on the other hand, there are those, and Onesiphorus has actually come all the way to Rome to, you know, to, to find him. And he said that this guy had been a great help to him previously when he was in Ephesus. And, uh, you know, so again, you see Paul's experience. There were those who stuck closely with him, and there were others who, who turned against him and walked out on him. And, well, sadly, this is the experience sometimes that the Christian life uh, le leads us through. Okay, now then, we, we, we move into chapter 2. And he says, Timothy, be strong in the grace of Jesus. See this emphasis, Timothy, be strong. Timothy, be strong. Timothy was a weak type of character. I mean, that's encouraging. I mean, when I'm weak, I'm strong. You know, we often think that, you know, that, you know these, these super together Christians in the New Testament, I mean, you know, flesh and blood, just like us. Paul referred to himself, we saw last, last time when he wrote to Timothy, he said, I am the chief of sinners. I mean, Paul wasn't one of these, oh, I'm, you know, sin is something that I never do anymore. It's, well, no. I mean, you know, we've all got feet of clay, and these are human beings that God is using. And he says, look, be strong in the grace of Jesus. And he says, pass on to other reliable men what you've received from me, so that they, in turn, are qualified to teach others. Now, remember, here... Timothy has got a particular role to play in helping to raise up elders, all right? And what Paul's talking about is he's saying, in a sense, look, Timothy, through my example, I have discipled you, if you like, okay? Now then, what you're to be doing there is what I've done to you. You've become my son, I've been your father, I've raised you in the Lord. Now you are doing that for others in the Ephesian churches, okay? And then, if you do that properly for them, they will go on to then do the same for others. And you see this passing down through the spiritual generations, okay? Um, you know, the idea that everything we're doing, it's not just for now, it's always with an eye to the future. And so he's saying, look, you know, Timothy, pass this on, but in such a way that those you pass it on to will then in turn pass it on to others. So this picture of... of, of discipling all, all the new generations of uh, young believers being, being raised up. And then he says, Timothy, endure hardship like a good soldier. And he says, the only thing a good soldier thinks of is pleasing his commanding officer. A good soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. He's just thinking, I've got my orders, I know what my general has told me to do, it's hard, it's dangerous, but I want to be obedient to my general. And of course, the picture is Paul saying, look, relate to Jesus like a soldier would to his general. Absolute loyalty, all right. Your only concern is pleasing him. So therefore endure hardship, because that's a big part of a soldier's life. And then he says, also compete like an athlete, but according to the rules. Obviously, you know, I mean, God has given us rules. There are ways to live the Christian life, there are ways not to. But all the time, Paul is urging Timothy to really, as it were, to be doing his best, to, to really be going all out, uh, serving the Lord. So if you've got a really dedicated athlete, well, they're going to work hard. They're going to be single-minded about it. And then he says, uh, you'd be like a hard-working farmer. I mean, farmer, if you want to see the crops coming, you've got to, you've got to you know, put your back into it. But he says that the, the farmer receives a share of the crops. So the point is that, obviously, if we really do put our backs into serving the Lord, what is it we're reaping back? Getting closer and closer to Him. Knowing more and more that we're in His will and pleasing to Him. Well, that, that's reward enough for here, and of course, eventually, uh, we'll be with Him in glory, and we'll, we'll have an eternal reward. And... Um, 
you know, and he tells Timothy, just remember that Jesus is the gospel that I'm in chains for. I'm here, chained up in a Roman prison because of Jesus. He's our commanding officer, and we've got to kind of, you know, be doing our duty. But he says, but God's word isn't chained. He says, I'm chained up, but God's word isn't chained. So he says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation in Jesus and eternal glory. That was interesting. He considered that he was doing it all for the sake of the elect so that they could obtain salvation. Whatever, of course, he meant by that. Okay. Now then, uh, let's, let's actually just read a couple of verses in 2 Timothy. Um, sorry, and, and, and in chapter 2. And he, he quotes a hymn now. And uh, he does this sometimes. Or we assume that they're early kind of hymns and that. And he says, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. Which I take it to mean if we disown him in this life, then he'll withdraw his blessings for us in this life. Is it loss of salvation? Don't think so, because then he says, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. So he just kind of presumably quotes that saying it was a recognised him or, you know, or something at any rate. And, um, and then he, he says that, that Timothy is to remind the church of all these things. So Paul is advising Timothy as an individual, but remember all this is to be passed on to the believers in the churches that Timothy is, uh, is leading. And, uh, and he says, warn against quarrelling about words which ruins people's lives. Now, this is, they'd had a lot of problems with false teaching, and the trouble is a lot of people with their false teaching, it's all kind of words, it's, you know, you know, it's hard to explain. Paul talks about endless genealogies and this sort of thing. And it's like when you get people just trying to tie you up in the minutiae of what words mean, you know, sort of like in a home, majoring in on the minors and, and getting all controversial about things that really don't seem to matter, that's always a sign of false teaching. And it ruins people. It ruins people. Because people end up getting all intense about things that don't matter. And then, of course, they start falling out with each other, which is absolutely ridiculous. And he says, rather, he says, look, you've got to be a good workman and handle the word of God correctly. Now that word correctly, and we saw this verse in some detail when we did the thing about hermeneutics a few weeks ago, didn't we? The Greek word here means to cut straight. And what Paul is saying is, look, Timothy, as you teach from the word of God, cut a straight line. Go from A to B in a straight line. Nothing twisted. And of course the thing about false teachers, they come in and they twist the word of God. They distort it. They take things out of context. They ignore the bits that they don't like. You see what I mean? Whereas what Paul is saying, look, Timothy, the word of God, plain and simple, handle it properly, cut a straight line with it so that no one can say that you're twisting it round or anything like that. And he says, and therefore you'll have nothing to be ashamed about. Um, and then he says, godless chatter is to be avoided because it makes people more and more ungodly. And then he defines what this chatter is, and back to what he's just said about, you know, quarrelling about words and that. He actually defines the, this chatter as false teaching. False teaching is godless chatter, all right. And he actually uh, defines what he's talking about here, and he actually names a couple of people, um, Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, Hymenaeus got mentioned in the first letter and handed over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. Now, we saw what blasphemy meant in that context. It means to misrepresent the Lord by false teaching. And when you get this hand over to Satan, this is the language of 
excommunication, right? And so, so this this is a guy that Paul had put out of the church, okay? And uh, you know, and he says that this guy with another guy called Philetus, for instance, is is teaching that the resurrection is already past. Now, what you've got here is a form of people allegorizing things in the Bible that are literal. Because how could the resurrection have been passed? I mean, you know, the resurrection is going to be a literal thing. It's, it's future. But the point is, whatever the false teaching is, and here he defines what it is here, it doesn't matter what the false teaching is, though. It's godless chatter. It's people filling their minds with things that go against what the Word of God teaches. And he says it spreads like gangrene. Now, gangrene, if you get gangrene in a limb, you have to cut that limb off. Otherwise, it will spread to the whole body and it will kill the whole body. That's why discipline in church matters, and ultimately with false teachers, why putting them out of the church has to be done, because he says it's already destroyed the faith of some. So if false teaching really does get a good grip in a church and isn't dealt with, it will end up actually destroying people, if only because eventually it divides those who are sticking with Scripture off from those who are going against Scripture, and then you've got a church split. So it's much easier to deal with it as soon as the false teaching is actually introduced, all right? And then he says, look, all this godless chatter isn't what matters. He says, what matters is that the Lord knows them that are his, and let those who confess the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. And in saying that, he's actually saying that going with false teaching is a form of wickedness. His context here is false teaching, and it's dangerous, all right? And then he says, in a house, you've got different utensils in a house. And there are gold and silver ones for good and noble purposes. Maybe put some nice flowers in, or for a lovely candle, or, you know, the, the best silver for when guests come for a banquet, or something like that. But he says, also, there are wooden clay ones for ignoble purposes. There are the ashtrays. There are the waste bins. And what he goes on to say, he says, look, if you cleanse yourself from ignoble things, then you'll be made holy and useful for the master for any good work. And what he's saying is, what do you want to be in your Christian life? Do you want to be a nice vase that Lord can put a flower in and really bless everyone just with, oh, what a lovely flower? Yeah. Or do you want to be the ashtray? You see what I mean? Just smelling the place out with bad behaviour and a bad spirit, you know, about you. See what Paul's saying? That ultimately, it, it's our choice. And the trouble with false teaching is that it, it just turns people into the spiritual equivalent of ashtrays or, or waste bins. It, it's only fit for rubbish and waste. Because false teaching always, always, ultimately, destroys God's people. Okay. Now, let, let me actually read verses 22 okay, to, to the end of the chapter, because this is just uh, good to actually read these verses. And he says, Flee the evil desires of youth. Now, we know Timothy was fairly young. Again, sometimes, you, you know, there are some, you know, sort of people, they almost give the idea that, uh, you know, kind of, the Christian life is, is, is one of, of complete triumphalistic deliverance from sin and weakness and everything like that. You know, and it's up in the glory all the time. Now, Timothy is a mature believer. He's a single man. He's an apostle. He's leading churches. He's been raised and trained by Paul himself. And Paul writes to him, and he says, um, flee the evil desires of youth. And, of course, what he's saying here is, don't get sinful with women. Now, the point is, Timothy, even though a mature believer, was, was he beyond the dangers of sin? Of course not. 
So therefore, Paul is saying, Timothy, make sure that you flee useful lusts. Don't even get in a situation where you can be tempted. Because the point is, Timothy could have been tempted just like anybody else. Again, I come back to the fact, these guys were flesh and blood, just like us. They weren't super Christians or anything like that. They had to watch themselves just like we do. This is real down-to-earth stuff. And he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. You know they produce quarrels. Back to the factiousness of false teaching there. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. And he's saying, look, when you've got Christians, Timothy, who have started to get into false teaching and they're getting a bit beguiled by it, he says, look, and, and, and even they're starting to oppose you. See, because when you get false teaching in, it's always anyone who can teach good teaching who's the target. you see what I mean? Because obviously they've got to undermine anyone who can counter what they're teaching. So these guys are opposing him. And so what Paul is saying, look, yeah, you must gently instruct them. You've got to be firm, but it's got to be gentle. you see what I mean? The, it's all the time got to be grace. Tough? Yes but gentle nevertheless. But one way or the other, false teaching has got to be actually dealt with in, in the church when it happens. Okay. So, there, there, there you go. You know, people get into false teaching that they're in the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That's why it's kind of so, so dangerous. Okay, right. Now then, in chapter 3 he goes on and he says, in the last days there will be terrible times. Now, in the New Testament, the last days are death of Jesus onwards. All right? So, we're in the last days. We've been in the last days for, you know, for, for, for nigh on 2,000 years. In fact, maybe a little bit over 2,000 years. Um, and he, he gives a, a, a list of, of sins. So, what he's saying is, this is going to characterise the human race more and more and more. He talks about people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers, etc., etc. And he says, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Because what he's talking about here is man is fundamentally a religious and spiritual creature. Atheism is extremely rare. And, you know, e even with communism, there was only ever one atheistic state, and that was Albania, and now it's not atheistic anymore. But the point is there will always be spirituality. But what Paul is saying, don't be taken in by it. Spirituality of itself is nothing. Spirituality can actually be demonic. So he says, people, they have a form of godliness, they'll talk God, but their morals are those of an alley cat. And, of course, this is what we see today, isn't it? It's, it's you know, it, it's sort of all around us. I mean, you know, it, I mean, England today, oh, it's such a moral country, isn't it? I mean, don't, don't unbelievers have this intense sense of right or wrong, don't they? The only trouble is it's completely averted, completely inverted. You know, to disapprove of perversion makes you a bigot. 
See, it's a totally inverted sense of morality where those who are sticking to righteousness are made to look like they're guilty and those who are going with unrighteousness are made to look like they're the righteous ones, you see. And what Paul says is, look, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. And, uh, and it's interesting because, again, there are some Christians, you know, you get this teaching that the church is going to, you know, go from strength to strength until the world has got converted and then Jesus is going to come back. And you think, the world's going to get converted. And you think, how do you square that with Paul's expectation that far from anything getting better was going to be the last days, 2,000 years so far, of things going from bad to worse. And that's what it's going to continue doing. And he says that, that these false teachers, now he's talking about, you know, the, these aren't Christians. They, these are just, you know, religious people who aren't in any way, you know, sort of, you know, they're just spiritual people. He says, look, they worm their way into people's homes and they gain control over weak-willed women. And then he compares them to Yannis and Yambris. Now, these were the people when Moses was working the miracles in front of um, Pharaoh, you know, let my people go, right? Um, Pharaoh had these two magicians and they counterfeited the miracles that Moses was working. Now, the Old Testament didn't give us their names, but Paul does, all right? And he said, look, there are always satanic counterfeit people, all right? So the point is, don't be taken in merely by spirituality. I, I will go so far as to say that much of the charismatic movement in its very extreme forms is more akin to this. I'm not talking about all the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, they're absolutely genuine. But I'm talking about when you get some of the really extreme stuff that is so awful to look at, you're probably more dealing with this sort of thing, satanic counterfeit, than, 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 than the genuine just going wrong, as it were. Although a lot of the charismatic movement is the genuine going wrong. But some of it really is the spiritual counterfeit, just like Paul's talking about here. And so he says the thing with these guys is they oppose the truth, and he says they're rejected as far as faith is concerned. The fact that they're spiritual is neither here nor there. You can tell from their lives that they're absolutely nothing to do with the Lord whatsoever. And then Paul reminds Timothy again of his example to him. He says, Timothy, you, you've known my example, my way of life, my faith, my love, my patience, my endurance, my persecutions. The point is, Timothy had known Paul for years, years and years, and he had seen all this. It wasn't just that Paul did a couple of Bible studies and said, OK, Timmy, take it from there. All right? He lived with him. He nurtured him. That's what leadership is. It's a sharing of lives together. And when any of us are, are seeking to influence others, that's always the way to do it, just through personal example over the years. And he says, look, all who live godly in Jesus will be persecuted. That, that is a, a spiritual law. If we really are living godly lives, we will, in one shape or form, Physical persecution is only one type of persecution. Persecution is being rejected because of what we believe and the way we live. And so that's going to happen. Uh, sometimes with unbelievers, sadly, sometimes with believers. That, that's kind of sad. We saw it happen to Paul. Paul had people who worked with him, desert him, walk out on him. Well, there may be times when we experience that as well. So he says, all who live godly in Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men go from bad to worse. So he's saying, don't expect the world to get any better, because it won't. And so he says, Timothy, stick closely to the word of God that you have been taught from infancy. 
Uh, this is how we know that his mum and his grandmother from infancy were teaching him the word of God. Obviously, the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, wasn't even nearly around at that point particularly. Um, well, no, it, you know, it would have been, but only in bits and pieces. And, uh, and he says, look, you know, you'll be made wise for salvation to the extent that you stick closely to the word of God. And then he says, all scripture, this is a verse we've looked at again and again, isn't it, through the years. He says, all scripture, I mean, Genesis to Revelation, all scripture is God-breathed. Now, breathe it, I'm breathing as I speak. God-breathed, it's inspired, expired. It, the idea, it's God's word. You know, you, you, you are breathing as you talk. All scripture is God's word and it's useful. And he says for teaching, that means how to do it and how not to do it, what we believe, how we should behave. Rebuking, that's telling us off. Correcting, and the Greek term there is a nautical term, it's course correction. So all the time, as we stick close to the word of God, we see where we're just starting to go off at a tangent and it brings us back. And he says for training in righteousness, and that's the Greek word for child training. So what he's saying is, without sticking closely to the word of God, we will not truly grow up to be mature in the Lord. I mean, hence my obsession with being biblical. I mean, you know, but, but that's what it boils down to, sticking close to the word of God. And he says, then you'll be fully equipped for every good work. Okay. Right, then in chapter 4, he goes on and he gives him a, a solemn charge. Okay. Um, he, he, he says, you know, and he says, I do, I give you this solemn charge. This is heavy stuff. He says, Timothy, he said, preach the word at all times. To correct, now that's course correction. So he's saying, Timothy, you must keep teaching the people that God has put you amongst. Because as you keep teaching, all will be brought back to the straight line from whatever deviations are going on, all right? He says, rebuke, that means to tell off. Well, we gotta, you know, we gotta be brave enough to do that when it's necessary with each other. And he says, and encourage with great patience. And he says, Timothy, do it. Because if you don't do it, you won't be the blessing to those people that you're meant to be, okay? And actually read verse three and four. And this is the danger, and this is part of what's getting worse and worse, and we really are seeing this today. For the time will come when men, and he's talking about believers here, he's talking about the believers in Timothy's charge, as it were. He says, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Well, what's the whole thing that Paul is saying to Timothy? Stick to sound doctrine, the sound pattern of faith, the pattern of the word of God. All right, stick to it. He says, they will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather round them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So he says, Timothy, that's what you're up against. And the church, Christians are going to be up against that throughout the church age. More and more we will see believers turning away from what the Bible teaches, because they've got itching ears. They're not prepared to go with what the Bible teaches. They might here and there, they might 70%, but all the bits we don't like, let's chop them up and throw them away. Paul's saying, no, you can't do that, Timothy. You've got to hold people to the entire word of God, okay? And, uh, well, I mean, ultimately, if people have itching ears, I mean, they will, ultimately, they will go find, you know, the teachers who are saying all the nice things that they want them to hear. 
you know, they'll they'll go and you know hear all the feminist teachers. They'll they'll go and hear all the health and wealth and prosperity teachers. They'll they'll go and you know sort of hear all the people who are saying, oh no, it doesn't really matter how you behave. You know, God loves you. It doesn't really matter whether you live a holy life or not. You know, take it easy. Don't get to. You see, that's what Christians will go for more and more. And sadly, we're we're seeing that all the time. And he says, so Timothy, you keep your head in all situations. And, and it's easy to lose your head sometimes. Your head can spin. I mean, take a look at the Christian scene. It's hard sometimes to keep your head about it. And he says, but Timothy, you've got to keep your head in all situations. He says, endure hardship. It's not going to be easy. Just put up with it. Just put up with it, all right? Don't moan and groan about it, or not too much. Put up with it, because it comes with the territory. And he says, do the work of an evangelist. Now, that was important, because Timothy was an apostle. Timothy was not just a pastor-teacher, as in the sense of an acting elder. He was an apostle. And apostles were evangelists as well. So they were evangelist plus elder, pastor, teacher sort of thing. So Timothy, like Paul, was the whole caboodle. So therefore it was important that he is all the time doing the work of evangelism and reaching out to unbelievers as well, you see. So he says, look, whatever the duties of your ministry are, Timothy, make sure that you are discharging them. And then Paul tells him, he says, Timothy, I'm about to be poured out like a drink offering. Drink offering was when you, you got, you know, like, like precious liquid and you, you poured it out. Paul was expecting that he was going to die very, very soon, all right? And he says, I've fought the good fight. He says, I've, I've finished the race. He says, I've, I've kept the faith. So what he's saying is, I'm expecting imminently to be killed. I don't know if I'll ever see you again, but he says, I've kept the faith. I've, I've not fallen away. I've not shipwrecked my faith. I've not gone back to the world. He says, I've, I've run the race. And I mean, for all of us, crumbs, that's where, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled by the grace of the Lord and all of us, for however many years we follow the Lord. I mean, we can say, thank you, Lord. We haven't shipwrecked our faith. We're still here. We're still going strong. And, and you know, and that's obviously, I want to be able to say that right up, and, right up until the end. And he says, a crown of righteousness is stored up for him, but not him only. He says, but all of those who are, are waiting for the Lord's appearing. So the point is whether that's going to be the rapture, maybe, maybe not, or whether just because we die. The point is, he says, look, we're waiting one way or the other to be with the Lord and that crown of righteousness, that, that reward is, uh, is going to be there for us. And he, he says, he asks Timothy to come and visit him as soon as he can. He says, Timothy, come and see me. You know? So he says, here's, here's all this vitally important work you've got to keep doing in Ephesus. And Paul means it. And then he says, but take a few weeks off and come and see me. Because Paul was lonely. Oh, that's kind of nice, isn't it? And, um, and also, now, he tells him about Demas. Now, you can read about Demas in other of Paul's epistles. Demas was on, one of, was on Paul's apostolic team. Demas was an apostle, like Timothy, like Paul. And he says that Demas had gone back to the world. Demas had backslidden. See? I mean, that, that's why the Bible warns us again and again and again about all the dangers. That if we, if we don't really keep a tight rein on our Christian lives, bit by bit, bit by bit, Satan can get in there. Not loss of salvation. I mean, we'll, we'll see Demas in heaven. But how tragic that he went back to the world. Could happen to any of us. If it happened to Demas, crumbs. Could happen to any of us. None of us are safe.
says Crescens and Titus have had to resume their travels, so they're not with Paul anymore. Um, they, they hadn't fallen away, but Crescens had gone to, to do work in Turkey and Titus to Dalmatia. Okay, So they hadn't fallen away. But the point is, what Paul is saying, he's very much on his own, you see. You know, with a, a mixture of people walking out on him, because it was too tough being with him, people falling away, and others just legitimately having to go about their ministries wherever God is leading them. And uh, he says, only Luke is still with me. So, you know, Paul's a poor old, lonely old sausage in this prison cell. So he, he, he wants to, uh, to see Timothy. And then he says, and, and can you bring Mark as well? Now, I don't know where Mark was at this point. Presumably, Timothy knew. But, of course, Mark, do you remember, years before... Timoth, uh, Paul had had a big falling out with Barnabas. Paul started working with Barnabas, ministering together as apostles. And then Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him, all right? But Mark didn't have a very good track record at that point. Paul didn't want him to go. And they had a big bust up over it. So they, they went their own separate ways. But it's lovely to know that later on in Paul's life, Mark, who back then he didn't trust and didn't want with him, now they're the best of friends, and in fact, Mark is actually on one of Paul's team. So that's that's kind of nice, you know. It's all all forgiven and all sorted out, and that's 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 lovely. So and, and he says that you know that that that, that kind of you know I, w I want you to bring Mark as well. And then he says I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. So he says the point is, yeah, at least Tychicus can kind of take your place while you're here with me. So. Paul's making sure that the churches aren't going to be deserted because they're still needing. Timothy's leadership. Now, the whole idea is that eventually they'll have, they'll be complete with their own elders again, and the apostles can move on. But remember, something had gone wrong, and so you know, so, so Paul's saying, "I'm not going to leave the churches without anyone helping them." Tychicus will go and uh, take take your place, and he says, "Also, Timothy, can you bring my cloak and scrolls that are at Carpus's house in Troas?" So now he's got to go via. Tra That's a lot of travelling, you know. So he couldn't just jump an aeroplane or you know fly Delta or anything like that, and it would have taken him a long time to get there. And uh, and then Paul Paul talks about a guy called Alexander, the metal worker. Now we don't know if this is the same Alexander he talks about in one Timothy. It might be. <coughs> But he says, Alexander the metal worker has done me great harm. Avoid him. Paul, Paul didn't hesitate to name names and say, stay away from that person. They're bad news, all right? Um, and then he speaks again of those who have deserted them, him. And he says, might not be held against them. So, obviously, he has a heart of forgiveness towards them. And he says, but the Lord has stood with me. And he says, so the message has been proclaimed to the Gentiles after all. And he says, I've been delivered from the lion's mouth then. And he said, I will continue to be delivered from the lion's mouth until I am brought safely to the heavenly kingdom. So the point is, he's saying, well, if it's God's will for me to be released, I will be released. But if it's not, then I, I, I will go to the heavenly uh, kingdom. And then we'll just, just read his last, uh, his last ver uh, verses, just the closing part of the letter. And he says, um, greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus, he mentioned him earlier, Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. It's a long journey. Um, Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. So, boom, boom, there, there, there you've got Paul's second letter to, to Timothy. Okay, well, we'll dive straight in to Titus. Uh, just remind ourselves, um, in a similar way that, 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 that Timothy had been dispatched to sort out whatever problems had emerged in the Ephesian church, um, around the same time, uh, Titus 
remained with churches that he and Paul had brought into being through evangelism in Crete. So the difference is um, Timothy had gone back to churches that really shouldn't have needed apostolic help anymore, whereas Titus is staying with new churches who don't yet have elders, if you see what I mean. So, so Titus has just stayed behind while the others had, had moved on, all right. And so he's, he's on the island of Crete, leading these new churches that are coming to being because the people have been converted through the evangelistic ministry of the apostles, okay. So this is Paul's letter to, to Titus um, in that situation. And um, he says, from Paul, servant of God, apostle, for the faith of God's elect, and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life promised before the beginning of time. Paul always ties, whatever you decide to make of it, Paul always ties his calling up, it's for the elect. Alright, okay, so whatever you want to make of that, but it's for the elect and it all goes back to the beginning of time, or before the beginning of time in fact. And he says, and, and, and God's word having come to light through me at the appointed time. And he says, Titus, my true son, in our common faith. So again, Titus, like Timothy, younger man, Paul's relationships with him, co-workers, apostles together, but that of a father to a son. Again, that lovely kind of relationship that, that, that Paul had with, with him. And he says grace and peace. Now let's, let's just read verses 5 to 9 very quickly. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, okay, I'm not going to read it all because he goes over again some of the qualifications that he dealt with in more detail when he wrote, to, uh, when, when he wrote uh, his first letter to Timothy. But there's, there's one thing that I want to, 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 to home in on here. There's something that he adds that doesn't come over in the Timothy thing, and it's important. He's speaking here about the role of elders, okay? Now, in the Timothy list, he says an elder must be apt to teach. Well, obviously, it doesn't mean that an elder's got to necessarily be a fully-fledged Bible teacher, but he must be apt to teach. But we get this now. He, I, an elder, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. Well, boom, there you have it again. But listen to this. And refute those who oppose it. Now, that word refute is interesting. The English word simply conjures up that you'd need to be able to counter it. So someone's bringing false teaching, to refute it you simply demonstrate from the Bible that it's wrong. But that is not what the English word, uh, sorry, that's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word here, incredibly, is elencho. It's the word for convict of sin means to convict of sin. And what Paul is saying, now obviously there can be times when someone might introduce an idea that isn't very biblical and it's no big deal, it can just be smoothed over and corrected very, you know. But when it comes to what you would call serious false teaching, the role that elders have to play is not merely to demonstrate why that false teaching is wrong but they must do so in such a way that it reveals the sin in the person who's holding that false teaching. Because all false teaching is linked to sin. Can you see what I mean? By definition. Because false teaching is when we're holding on to something that goes against the Word of God because we don't like what the Word of God says. Can you see what I mean? False teaching is a way we justify rebellion against God. 
And so therefore, with serious false teaching, it's not enough to just deal with the false teaching itself and refute it in the sense of demonstrate why it's wrong. That's vitally important to do that. But it also has to be done in such a way that the sin involved in the false teaching is revealed. So that everyone can see, this isn't just a question of misunderstanding, that this is actually people wanting to go against the word of God in something and twisting it in order to try and justify it. So what he's saying here is that an elder must be able to, 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 to refute those who oppose sound doctrine, but in such a way that it convicts them of the sin in their heart that has caused them to want to believe that false teaching in the first place. Now that's uncomfortable stuff, but nevertheless that's, that's important. And he goes on to say, for there are many rebellious people. And he's talking about believers here. He says, for there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Now the circumcision, these were the, you know, the Jewish saints from Jerusalem who were going around saying Gentiles have got to be circumcised. There was no question that they were believers. But he gives them as an example. They had a false teaching. They were wrong to, you know, to, to, you know, to, to kind of adhere to it. And he says, but look, um, for their, uh, they, 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 they must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. Do you see what I mean? And you're back to it. False teaching damages and even destroys God's people. Now, he, he goes on now, and, and you know, this, this, this is very, very far from, um, you know, the political correctness that we so uh, treasure today. Uh, remember here, he's writing of people in Crete, because he's writing to Titus on the island of Crete. Now, there were Jews everywhere, and there were circumcision party members in Crete, all right? So, these were Jews who had got converted, but they were holding to the circumcision party, that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved. Believing in Jesus isn't enough. You've got to believe in Jesus, but you've got to be circumcised as well. So obviously these are Cretan Jews. Jews, although they were Jews, there were Greek Jews, there were Roman Jews, there were, you know, can you see what I mean? So, so they were the citizens of the country they were in. I mean, the Jews in New York are American Jews, aren't they? Okay. And what Paul does now, speaking of them, is he quotes uh, one of his favourite poets, a guy called Epimedes. Now, Paul quotes him in Acts as well. And he says, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. And Paul quotes a Cretan poet who actually wrote of his own people that they were uh, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And in the ancient world, in exactly the same way that the, the, the Corinthians... Corinth was, was famed, or was rather infamous, for its immorality. And in the ancient world, the, the, the verb to Corinthianize meant to pervert, you know, or to, you know, to make someone immoral, all right? Now, in the ancient world as well, to Cretanize meant to make a liar of someone. Because the Cretans were so well known for being liars and lazy, in the same way that the Corinthians were so well known for being immoral and perverts. See what I mean? And, and Paul actually, he quotes a Cretan poet, and he applies it to these Jewish Christians who were into false teaching in Crete. 
I mean, that's pretty disrespectful, isn't it? But the point is, what he's saying is, you know, Titus, you've got to silence these guys. Rebuke them sharply. They were tearing the church apart. And that's what false teaching does. It tears churches apart. And so this is, you know, kind of, wow, that's heavy stuff. And, you know, of course, crumbs, it's, you know, believe me, there are times when the last thing you want to be is an elder. But it's got to be done, I'm afraid. Otherwise, the church will never be, um, you know, sort of like corrected. And so he says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. He says again with false teaching, it gets people all screwed up about things that don't matter. You know, and they start, you know, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that, when they're things not forbidden by scripture, that's legalism. Or on the other hand, saying you've got to do this and you've got to do that. Again, things not in the Bible. And he says, their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. I.e. they're out of fellowship. Their lives are not showing the fruit of the Lord. He says they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Crumbs. Well, yeah, until they repent, they are. That's heavy-duty stuff, isn't it? But, well, anyway, glad, glad that was Paul said it. Um, so and then in verse uh, chapter 2, he goes on. He says, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. I can see the emphasis here. It's not the only emphasis, but wow, it's a very, very big emphasis, all right. Um, and he says, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled. And he says, likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers. Um, or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Now, this is one of the... Now, I mean, here, talking about the older women to teach the younger women, or actually in the NIV it gets it right, it's train, it's not teach. This isn't talking about women's conferences or women's Bible studies. These are older, mature Christian women who have been there and done that when it comes to raising a family. And they can take the younger women who are just starting out under their wing and help them to be everything that a Christian wife ought to be in the same way that the older men should be everything that the older men ought to be. But let me just show you, because this is interesting, that when he's talking about this God's order for family, the difference in the role between the man and the woman, he says so that no one will malign the word of God. And Paul actually says here, if God's order for family is not observed, i.e. what he's saying is, we would use the word if feminism creeps in, he says what happens is, the word of God will be maligned. Now, just go back with me to 1 Timothy, where we were in the last study. I can't remember whether I particularly honed in on this, but uh, do you remember when we were looking in chapter 5 about the widows who were okay to give money to and to support, okay? And, um, and he talks about, um, he says, I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes. So this is God's order for family again. Listen to this. And to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. Can you see how seriously Paul considers it is when you mess around with God's order for family? 
He talks about Satan being able to slander the word of God and he talks about that people are maligning the word of God. I mean, that's, you know, it, it's, that, that's fairly heavy stuff. And you know, the thing is that deep down, deep down, irrespective of, of all the place where we are as, as a modern Western 21st century country, people instinctively in their hearts know that God has an order for family, that a man is the head of his house, that a woman is the man's helper. Now then, the world often gets it wrong. You get chauvinistic oppression of women. That's evil. It's not what it's talking about. But it's instinctive. And when Christians are not observing that, deep down, unbelievers look on and they know that those Christians are being inconsistent with what they're meant to believe. You see what I mean? It's like when Paul talks about women having the long hair. He talks about, you know, nature tells us, natural. And he says men with really long hair. It's unnatural. Everyone kind of really knows it's unnatural, if you see what I mean. This is one of the arguments that, you know, that Paul uses. So, yeah, it, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of important there. And then he says, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Right. Uh, set them an example by doing what's good, and in your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you, notice, Leaders always seem to have someone opposing them, don't they? Goes with the territory. So that those who oppose you may not be, may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So he says, Timothy, you know, sorry, Titus, show the young men by your example what it is to be self-controlled, all right? And then he says, teach the slaves to be subject to their masters, okay, um, and to please them not to talk back to them and especially now you know because slaves who got converted knew that now they were free men in the law there was the danger that they might no longer be properly respectful to their masters paul says no make sure that that doesn't happen make sure they don't steal from them make sure that they're showing their masters that they can be fully trusted and so that in every way they will make the teaching about god our savior attractive now, the Greek there is the idea of putting on an attractive garment. You see what I mean? And it's the point that if we, whatever group we're in, all right, I mean, it's different for women, different for men, different for employers, different for employees, different for parents, different for children. You see what I mean? Whatever category we're in, in whatever area of life we are, to the extent that we're going by God's rules, if you like, for the category, whichever category we're in, then to that extent, we're, as the King James Version says, we're adorning the doctrine of God. We're showing, it, we're showing God's truth off in all its beauty. But if we don't live consistently with what we believe, we're marring it. You, know, you see what I mean? It's the difference between Philippa's beautiful dress when she got married the other week, okay, and some tramp walking around town in rags. You see what I mean? And that's what Paul's saying. Titus, make sure that you're teaching everyone that to the extent that we're living in obedience to the word of God, to that extent we're showing off God's truth and it's beautiful. But to the extent that we're not actually living in obedience to it, then actually we're damaging the word of God and we're causing people to malign it and we're even giving Satan a chance to slander it. And he especially, as, as I said, homes in on, uh, you know, the thing about, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, sort of God, God's order for, for family. Okay. 
Right, okay, now then, where, where have we got to now? Uh, then he, he talks about the, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And he says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions, to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. And he says we're waiting for the appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so he says if, if we've received God's grace, then that's the effect it ought to be having on us. You know, that we're living godly lives. And he said, and when Jesus came, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all unwickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So the point is, yeah, we're saved, but we're not just saved to go to heaven. If we're saved, we're going to heaven. But the point is, we're saved to serve. We ought to be examples to those around us. So we ought to, as, as I sometimes say, we ought to be going to heaven on a little bit of heaven, if you see what I mean. But not content to just kind of have our ticket for salvation, but then not to really live the Christian life to the full down here. And he says, these then are the things that you should teach. And they're very practical things. It's not just theoretical doctrine in that sense. But you'll notice when Paul talks about sound doctrine, he's not just talking about what you believe, he's talking about how we behave. It was the Greek, it was the early church fathers who brought in Greek philosophy which allowed to have spiritual theory here and reality on the other side of the equation. Whereas Jewish thinking is, if you're not living it, you don't believe it. Do you see what I mean? So, so the fathers, the Greeks say, what doctrine do you believe? The Bible says, what doctrine do you live? Do you see the difference? What we believe is what we're actually living. And if we believe it but aren't living it, as far as the Bible's concerned, we're not actually uh, believing it. And he says, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let any, anyone despise you. And that would be because of his youth. We saw that he said that to Timothy, didn't he? Don't let anyone despise your youth. And again, you know, sort of a Titus was a, was a, a, a young man. And, uh, and he tells him to uh, remind the people to be obedient to rulers and authorities. That's the government. Uh, to do what is good, not to slander, to be peaceable, considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. It's kind of knowing our place, not being too big for our boots, just, we've often seen before, just being happy to live a quiet life, just to mind our own business, to just get on with the, the daily round, and uh, living a godly life. People will notice, people will notice. And he says that we were all once foolish and disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to passions and pleasures. He says, we lived in malice and envy, hating and being hated. He said, that's how we all lived. It's how Paul lived before he was a Christian. He says, that's how we all lived. But he said, but the kindness and love of God our Saviour has appeared. And he said, he saved us. Not because of our righteous doings, we didn't have any. Because of his mercy. It's pure mercy. And he says, what he's done, he's, he's, he, he's washed us like a rebirth. You know, he's washed all the dirt away, and he's renewed us by the Holy Spirit. But we're new creations, and, and he's, he's poured the Holy Spirit out generously on us through Jesus. So that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs with a hope of eternal life. You know, so it's down here, but it's up there as well, for eternity. But it's got to be down here as well. And he says, look, Titus, stress these things so the church can devote itself to doing what's good. He says, teach people how to do good. He says, he says, look, avoid foolish controversies 
and arguments about the law and genealogies. Now that's just back to all the false teaching that they were getting in that situation. Again, this was the Jews who were the baddies, okay. But the false teaching could be anything, that's just what it was there. But he says it's foolish controversies and arguments. He says avoid them because they're useless and they're unprofitable, right? That they're good for nothing. And then he says, and, and this, this is tough, he says a divisive person gets two warnings and then he's out. Let me read it to you. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped, sinful and self-condemned. Talking about a believer. Now, there's a set, you know, to warn him once, then again, then have nothing to do with him. I, you know, there's a sense in which, you know, when you, when you get a bit older, you realise all the things, oh, I think I got that wrong, and I know I got that wrong, and if there's one, you know, sort of, if, you know, I was saying to Belinda the other day, the problem with wisdom is that you, you don't get it when you need it most, which is when you're younger, but I, 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 I think this, this is something, I, I believe through the years we've suffered as a church by not being as tough as this is. And, wow, we've suffered through it, especially in the early years. We, we, you know, we gave divisive people chance after chance after chance. You know, they tore us apart. I, I marvel sometimes that there's still a church here because of what we had to come through precisely in regards to this sort of stuff that Paul's writing about here. And, uh, wow, yeah, cer certainly you've got to be tough because otherwise Satan will absolutely tear you apart. And um, I mean, let's let's just read the, the last few verses of his um, of, of his uh, letter here. He says, "As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis." Now, this this letter was written at the same time as one Timothy. All right, not two Timothy, one Timothy. All right. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. In, um, in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And that you all is, is plural, and it's the same with the letters to Timothy as well, the first and the second. He's writing to the individual, but at the end, when he talks about grace be with you, each time it's the plural in the Greek. So the point is, obviously, Paul was, the whole idea was, although these letters were written to individuals, Timothy and Titus, they would obviously have been read out as well to the churches uh, that Timothy and, and Titus were actually um, leading. And um, also, just very quickly as well, I'll just go back in, um, in, in Titus, and I just want to, to say, just to deal with it, because it, 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 it often gets misunderstood, um, and in, in, in chapter 1 and in verse 5, when, when he talks about um, appointing elders, he says, Titus, I, I left you in Crete that you may straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. Now, there's another place in Acts 14 where it says that Paul and his team revisited churches that they started months previously and or, you know, or years previously and that they appointed elders in every town. And of course, this is you know one of the verses where people 
talk about, well, you know, the apostles have authority and they appoint elders who have authority over the church. And it, or rather, you know, of course, in the King James Version, disastrously, the word is ordained, which, which has all sorts of ecclesiastical connotations that are just nothing whatsoever to do with the Bible at all. Now here, when it talks about appointing elders, okay, the Greek word here is literally just the point. But in Acts 14, when it's used there, the Greek word, when it talks about they appointed elders in each church, all right, the, the Greek word there was, was the Greek word used of voting in the Athenian legislature. And it literally means to put your hand up. So the Acts 14 verse, when it says appoint, what it means is that they went back and they put their arms up voting for elders. And, and of course, the point is, elders are recognised by the church of which they are a part. This is the point. People see, here is a man who's qualified. We're seeing from his life that he passes the test, and you see that over years. And so the church recognises. So the point is, apostles, if they've actually brought the church into being, they play a part in recognising the elders as well, but only, as it were, by putting their hand up and saying, say, OK, to the guys that the church has recognised. You see what I mean? So it's not like apostles coming back and they're deciding who are going to be your elders. Do you see what I mean? Elders are always recognised by the church. And the Acts 14 appoint elders. Literally, the Greek word means to raise your hand, to acknowledge something. Okay. But here, it is the Greek word for appoint. But there's somewhere else where it's used. And if you go to Acts 6, and I'll show you where it's used. Um... Because we've got to ask, it comes across in the English and our Bibles like it was, it was Timothy and Titus, it was the apostles who decided who the elders were going to be. And I'm, I'm going to show you that's, that's just not, not the case. Now, if you go to Acts 6, and um, this is the raising up of what I take to have been the first deacons, all right? Um, and... In verse 3, the Apostles say, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Now, the Greek word there that gets translated, we will turn this responsibility over to them, that long mouthful is the same Greek word that we've just seen in Titus, that Titus is to appoint elders. Now, the point is here, with the deacons, the apostles said to the gathered church, I mean, they're in Jerusalem, churches, obviously, there were loads of them coming together. They said, you all choose the men. We will turn the responsibility over to them. So, when it says that Titus is going to appoint elders, <coughs> it's not in the Greek saying he's going to choose them, but he's going to hand over his task to them. Do you see the point? They're recognised by the church or the churches. Titus will simply recognise them along with the churches and maybe even lay hands on them so the Lord will anoint them to do their task. So neither in Acts 14 nor in Titus, when you get this word appointing elders, in neither case in the Greek is it referring to the apostles telling the church who the elders are going to be. The churches recognise who the elders are going to be. But the apostles, given that they helped start the church, and this wouldn't even apply to us. We weren't started by an apostle. All right, simple as that. We're, we're not a church that came into being by us as unbelievers getting converted and, and discipled by apostles. Not all churches start like that. 
But the point is, even those that do, it's not the apostles who decide who the elders are going to be. It's the people within the church. The elders ratify that decision and then lay hands and pray that the Lord will anoint them and equip them for the work that they've been called to. Okay. So, that just, just gets the, uh, the uh, appointing bit out of the way there. Um, okay, Philemon, very quickly. Yes, I think we've just got time. This, this, this is a real quickie. Um, basically here, um, this, this is one of four letters that Paul wrote from his imprisonment in Rome at the end of, end of Acts, Acts 28. Not the same imprisonment in Rome when he wrote to 2 Timothy. That was years later, all right? This was written Acts 28, all right, when Paul was under house arrest in his hired house, all right? At that time, he wrote four letters, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. We're looking at AD 60, all right? So six years prior to his letters, to uh, his second letter to Timothy. Philemon lived in Colossae, and he was a slave owner. Now, what's basically happened, he had a slave called Onesimus. Onesimus had run away, he deserted him, and that under Roman law was punishable by death, okay. Now, Paul's under house, you know, arrest in Rome, and Paul has met up with Onesimus and led him to the Lord. Discovered that this guy used to be the slave of a friend of his, okay, and now he's become a Christian, all right. And so what's happening here is Paul writes to Philemon, and he's basically saying, hey, guess what? Your runaway slave is now your brother, all right? And he says, I've met Onesimus, okay, and now he is, uh, he's, he's, um, he's following the Lord. And so he, he writes and he says, I, you know, sort of, he talks about, he, you know, sort of greet the church that meets in your home. Obviously all churches then met in, in homes, just, just like we do. And, um, and he writes to Philemon and does the stuff about, oh, you know, you've given me encouragement through the years and bless your brother and all that. And he, he tells him um, that uh, Onesimus is my son. And, and there's a joke here because he says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become useful. The name Onesimus means useless. So Paul's playing on words here. He's, he, he says useless is now useful. And he says, I'm going to send him back to you, but I don't want to send him back as a slave. He says, anything this has cost you, I'll pay back to you. But he says, I'm sending back him back as a brother. So, so he'd go back, be a servant, you know, like a, 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 a servant in the house, an employee, not a slave. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and Paul says, he says, he says I, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, but I appeal to you on the basis of love. Philemon, Paul, Paul led him to the Lord years previously, and Paul says, you owe me your life. You know, really, you owe me your life. And I'm asking now, instead of paying me back, pay Onesimus back. Accept him as a brother. Don't make him a slave anymore. And of course, if, if Philemon had handed him over to the authorities, he'd have been put to death, you see. And so, you know, Paul, Paul's saying, he says, look, the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that so that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man, as a brother in the Lord. And Paul says, look, it must have been real bad when you lost him, all right? You know, when he ran off, that's bad news. But he says, can't you see what God's done? He says, it's wonderful that he ran off, because now he's got saved, and you can have him back now. All, all the work, all the service he did for you, you're going to get all that back, but from a brother, as part of your family, not as a slave anymore. 
And I mean, there's—I think there's almost a prophetic parallel here, isn't there, with with salvation? You know, that so we were slaves to sin, and God takes us back as His children. I mean, it's, it's just a, a lovely picture. And so He says, "If you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self." So Paul, I mean, he's smiling all the way through here, but he's emotionally blackmailing Philemon. You know, he says, it, Paul is absolutely determined that Philemon go back and not obviously be put to death and handed over to the authorities. So he's really twisting Philemon's arm here, but it's in a perfectly acceptable way. And he's obviously counting on the fact anyway that Philemon would be so thrilled that he would, you know, you know sort of ha have him back as a brother quite, quite, you know, easily. And he says... I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience. And that was why Paul was doing this. He knew that Philemon would be quite happy with it. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And he says, one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. So Paul was expecting to be set free from that particular imprisonment, the Acts 28 one. And indeed, we, we, we know that he was. And, um, and he, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, you see, because this, this, was, this was before Demas fell away, tragic, isn't it? And Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, there, there you go, and uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus and Philemon, and uh, kind of... Well, that, 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 and, and that brings us to, to another section of the New Testament with Hebrews that we'll uh, move on to next time.